The Last Supper by Rachel Cusk At night I would be woken by unearthly groans from outside my window, inchoate monologues imperceptible to less sensitive souls. We were living in Bristol at the time, and I was increasingly feeling the pain of the city's history of slavery, a subject on which I would frequently digress to my Bulgarian cleaner. I needed to escape the disenchantment. I was also stuck for anything to write about, so a prolonged summer holiday in Italy seemed an ideal prescription. Our friends are sorry to see us go, for their lives will be so much less fulfilled without us. But I have a higher duty to my restless mind. The children are aghast to find there is no organic muesli on board the ferry, but I wave their concerns aside as I wonder at the pastel shades of the leatherette bonquettes that would not have been out of place in a Tintoretto masterpiece. We motor slowly through France at a steady 8 mph, yet still I feel as if the world is escaping me as I seek to write down every inconsequential detail while the children draw old masters in the back. We stop for the night at a decaying chateau, and the monsieur asks whether the children would like to eat pizza. For a while I am annoyed, but then decide after much agonising reflection, that he is right. Now is not the moment to induct miners into the spécialité du terroir. I throw the Italian phrasebook to the floor in disgust. Some of the words are not as I imagined they would be, and it feels as if my sensibilities have been brutally desecrated. But... I manage to compose myself by the time we arrive at our palazzo near Arezzo. At last, I feel alone in the process of liberation. There is a knock, and a Scottish man called Jim announces himself. I am perturbed to find I am not the only foreigner in Tuscany, but contain my ire and wave him in. He invites us to dinner and I do not want to go, for I fear the other guests will not be worthy of me. Yet the children point out he has a face like a Giotto painting, so I reluctantly acquiesce. In one of the more adumbrated recesses of the palazzo, I find a book about Piero della Francesca that tells me little I do not already know. That night... I have a dream, and I am impelled to seek out Constantine's dream. What does it mean to dream? I do not know, but in an instant I realise that Piero and I are as one in our quest for a truth beyond human concerns. As April gives way to May... I managed to contain my disappointment that Vasari had not been able to comprehend the violation of spatial perception, and our days are immersed in existential games of tennis with Jim, and I take delight in seeing that my children, whom I have barely noticed for weeks, have become spiritually resolved at some deep level through their playstations of the cross. In Florence... I gasp 
at Raphael's sublimation of the self. How quite unlike myself! Yet I sense a longing in his paintings, as if the question Raphael is constantly asking is, Who am I? How sad he should have to wait more than five hundred years for me to tell him. My book is almost complete. Jim sends me a love letter, unable to bear the pain of my departure, yet we must go briefly south. Naples is a broken place, somewhere only Raphael could mend, and we hasten north once more to the Vatican, where Catholicism's empty promises fail to cure my blisters. A phone call informs me the South Koreans have paid far too much for the rights to one of my books. Not a mistake they will make with this one. Yet even so, we are running out of money. The signpost points towards Paris. But I hate being given directions, so we turn off to spend our last night abroad in a pension, among the yellow-white fields of the Charente. The children are disturbed by Madame's salle de jeu. I, too, shudder at the lifeless froideur of the mannequins Madame has created, and imagine an artist immersed in an empty, onanistic self-congratulation. Madame catches my eye, and we give each other a smile of mutual recognition. The digested read digested. The last straw.